We are continuing in Genesis this morning. We're going to finish chapter 47 and 48. The title of the message is A Better Country. Let's start this morning with a little bit of a survey. Who's been to the most countries? Anybody want to say a number? You might have to think about it for a minute. You can count this one, yeah, I guess. I don't know. I don't know if I counted this one in my list. Ten? Okay. Anybody got more than ten? Bob does. About seven? Okay. Around twelve? All right. I think I got you guys beat. I, I put my list together this week and I had it at 20. But now some of those are territories, right? Like, you know what I mean? Might go to like a French territory, but not necessarily have been to the mainland France. But still, there's no other country to put it under, so. <laughs> but, um, well, has anybody ever, any of you not been outside of the United States? Okay, so we have some. Is there anybody here that has not been out of Oregon? Okay, so nobody. So I don't need to ask about Lane County or Eugene. <laughs> there are people, though, that haven't been outside their state, even their city sometimes, and not just infants. <clears throat> there was a woman named Lexi Alford who set the world record as the youngest person to ever travel to all 195 sovereign countries, and she accomplished that when she was 21 years old. Yeah, it's amazing. Traveling, traveling is... It's got its pros and cons, but I think it's a lot of fun. I like traveling a lot. In fact, I've kind of been missing getting out of the United States. It's been a, I mean, we went to Canada the first year that we were here, but that's Canada. Um, <laughs> but, you know, after college, we traveled so much, and then basically once we moved back, and then especially once we moved to Oregon, it kind of slowed down. Life settled down a lot more. And people travel for all kinds of reasons. You know, it might be vacation, it might be work, it might be visiting family, or some other necessity or whatever. There's tons of reasons. Sometimes people want to see if there's a better country out there, right? And so let's go visit some other countries and see if there's one that's better than the one that I'm from. And maybe I can move there. And now Americans, some of them think about that, probably not as much as people from some other places, but nonetheless, you might even have your own list of changes that you would like to see that would make this a better country. There was a study done of 2,000 Americans about the changes they wanted to see in their lifetime. 51% wanted affordable health care and quality education. 46% wanted access to public transportation. 42% wanted 100% renewable energy. 36% wanted no criminals to reoffend. I don't know why they would just say no crime at all, you know. But no criminals to reoffend was apparently ahead of no crime. 30% wanted to see no gun deaths. 28% wanted no government corruption. 26% no homelessness. 24% wanted poverty to be eradicated. 23% wanted no unemployment. 22% no police corruption. 21% no suicides. 17% no single-use plastics. 
Of course, we know that people are living in a dream world if they think these things are actually going to happen. But it highlights the, effect, the truth that people want a better country. We all do. We have our own lists. And somebody else wanted a better country. His name was Jacob. We've studied his life. We've been studying jo his son Joseph's life for a while now. But Jacob ended up dying in Egypt, as we'll study today. But he knew that that was not his home. That God was preparing a place for his family. And Christians need to have the same attitude, except our eyes are not on Canaan, they're on heaven. And we will be challenged and encouraged in a few ways today. And, and many, the themes that we'll be looking at are themes that we have gone over through Genesis before, but we're going to dig in deeper and look at them from some different ways. But one thing I hope to do is to help you think about where your heart is and where do you call home. So God, we pray that you would help us to see your word for all of this worth this morning and to be thankful to be here and to enjoy and be excited about digging into your word and learning from it and letting it transform us. God, this is, this is not a ritual that we do every Sunday. This is not a tradition that we have. This is a privilege and a gift to be able to come here today to, to, to read your word in our language it's so easily accessible and to study it together, freely. Lord, help us to appreciate this. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we have already studied through chapter 47, verse 12. That's where we left off a few weeks ago. And now we're going to start in verse 13. But there was no food in the entire region, for the famine was very severe. The land of Egypt and the land of Canaan were exhausted by the famine. Joseph collected all the silver to be found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain they were purchasing, and he brought the silver to Pharaoh's palace. When the silver from the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan was gone, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die here in front of you? The silver is gone. But Joseph said, Give me your livestock. Since the silver is gone, I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, the flocks of sheep, herds of cattle, the donkeys. That year he provided them with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they came the next year and said to him, We cannot hide from our Lord that the silver is gone and that all our livestock belongs to our Lord. There's nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we die here in front of you, both us and our land? Buy us and our land in exchange for food. Then we, will, then we, with our land, will become Pharaoh's slaves. Give us seed so that we can live and not die, and so that the land won't become desolate. In this way, Joseph acquired all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh, because every Egyptian sold his field since the famine was so severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph made the people servants from one end of Egypt to the other. The only land he did not acquire belonged to the priests, for they had an allowance from Pharaoh. They ate from their allowance that Pharaoh gave them, therefore they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, Understand today that I have acquired you and your land for Pharaoh. Here is seed for you, sow it in the land. 
At harvest, you are to give a fifth of it to Pharaoh, and four-fifths will be yours as seed for the field and as food for yourselves, your households, and your dependents. So this is actually a tough passage to read through our lens as 21st century Americans, right? Because we might read it tempted to view Joseph as like a cruel extortionist. First, he taxed the people 20% for during the seven years of abundance, right? We remember that, which that made perfect sense. In fact, I thought when I read that story, I'm like, wow, that's pretty low. I would have expected more. But then after the famine sinks its teeth in, he charged everyone for the food that had been stored up through taxation until the point where no, there's no money left. Money's gone. Of course, we haven't lived through something like this, but when things get this bad, everything collapses. Money doesn't matter anyway. It's all about survival. But their money's gone, and then they leverage their livestock. That only buys them a year. They have to come back the next year, and they have nothing left to leverage except their land and themselves. It's a horrific situation, but we also we need to recognize that Scripture gives us no reason to view Joseph negatively in, these, in this story. In fact, it points us the other direction. Verse 24 shows us, for one thing, that his intentions were not to bring everyone into an indefinite position of poverty. He was actually kind of generous in that moving forward, they get to keep 80% of everything, and 20% would be taxed. But that would allow them to work their way back into prosperity over time as the famine came to an end. But really, the biggest support for Joseph comes from the words of the people who had lost everything. In the very next verse, in verse 25, you have saved our lives, they said. We have found favor with our Lord and we'll be Pharaoh's slaves. So Joseph made a law, still in effect today, in the land of Egypt, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. Only the priest's land does not belong to Pharaoh. Do you notice that they were grateful? They were content to become Pharaoh's slaves, to submit themselves to Joseph. Why would they be grateful? Because they realized that's the only way to be saved. They were just happy there was a way. Right? And they weren't focused on anything that they were losing, all the things that they had to sacrifice, everything that they lost. They realized how bad of a situation they were in. They weren't focused on those things. They were just focused on what they were gaining, which was life. This was the only way that they could have life. So they viewed Joseph not as a cruel extortionist, but a wise leader who orchestrated their deliverance. This reminded me of a reality that I've preached on before. We are all slaves. We are slaves to sin or we are slaves to God. And that word has, it's charged and it has a lot of negative connotations in our world. But it is the term that scripture uses. Look at Romans 6, 16 through 22. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. 
For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. You see, as the people during this famine stepped into servitude to Pharaoh and Joseph with grateful hearts, so we... So should we exchange our shackles to sin for shackles to Christ with humble and grateful hearts. They had come to the end of themselves. They exhausted all other options. They're like, we, there's nothing left that we can give to you except ourselves. And they did it gladly because it was the only way. And that should remind us of the choice that we make when we surrender to Jesus. You see, you don't step from slavery to sin to, sla to slavery to Christ without realizing that there is no other way. Before coming to Christ, you know, we try all kinds of things. We put our hope in all kinds of things. We try to fill the void. We try to save ourselves. Some people more than others, right? Like some of you might have a story like mine where you gave your heart to Jesus at a younger age and you didn't try a whole bunch of different things to put your hope and salvation in. But others of you, you tried all kinds of stuff until you came to the end of yourself. But we all have one thing in common. No matter how many things that we've tried, we all realize there's no other way except through Christ. And just as these people didn't look at Joseph as a cruel extortionist and submitting to him as something to be done begrudgingly with pride in their hearts, neither do we look at Christ in those terms. Instead, he is a wonderful master that we serve with thankfulness. We're happy to submit to Jesus, not only because that's the only way to be saved, but because he is good and we actually love him. He orchestrated our salvation Unlike in Joseph's case, he did it with his own life. And like Joseph, though, in this story, God must get everything from us. You see, people have been wrestling with what God wants from humans for forever. Micah 6, 6 and 7 says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? You can see how the writer, they have these feelings like we often do. What does God want from humans? Humans' relationship with God reflects these people's relationship that they had with Joseph. It's like, what do you want? We've given everything. What else is there left to give? There's only one thing left. Take me. And sure enough, that's exactly what God wants. Because he says in verse 8, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. What does God want? He wants us. Jesus made this abundantly clear when he said what the whole law hinged on. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 through 40, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. 
Jesus made it clear. God makes it clear. What does he want? He wants us, all of us. And I'm not saying collectively, like, yeah, he wants each of us, but even with myself personally, he wants all of me, my whole self. They were like, here, Joseph, like, we gladly hand everything over to you. Thank you for what you did. And people, those who love Christ, who really love him, are glad to hand ourselves over to him. Now, yeah, we conjure up resistance sometimes. It's not always easy to do that. But we want to give him everything. We want to give Jesus everything, and we, want, and we do it with joy. Why? Because he's worth it. He is worth everything in our lives. And I'll bring that back up, but Matthew 13, 44 through 46 is a perfect example. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells everything that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold everything that he had and bought it. That is what love does, right? Like heaven, heaven's not going to be filled with people who like Jesus. It's not. It will be filled with those who love Jesus and who gladly exchange their old shackles for new ones because the new shackles are good. They're, they're shackles of freedom, if that can make sense to you. When we give ourselves to God, just like these people, we're, we're not focused on what we lose. We're not focused on the things that we leave behind, the things that we sacrifice. We're focused on what we gain, which is life, life eternal, life abundantly, life with Jesus. Hell will be filled. It will have lots of people who like Jesus. But they wouldn't make that exchange. And they will have to hear from him, depart from me. I never knew you. And they'll be like, but, 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 but. And he'll say, shh. You didn't love me. Well, but. No. You did not love me. You didn't get it. I was not your hidden treasure. I was not your pearl. You liked me, but you didn't love me. You flirted with me, but you are not my bride. And I don't want anybody to have to hear that. I don't want you to have to have that conversation with Jesus. And I hope you won't. Verse 27 through 30. Israel settled in the land of Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property in it and became fruitful and very numerous. Now Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, and his lifespan was 147 years. It's interesting that he, I'll just remember the beginning of Joseph's story, and he was 17 whenever Jacob lost Joseph. And now when he gets back with Joseph, he gets 17 years. It's interesting. When the time approached for him to die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor with you, put your hand under my thigh and promise me that you will deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. When I rest with my ancestors, carry me away from Egypt and bury me in their burial place. Joseph answered, I will do what you've asked. And, Joseph, and Jacob said, Swear to me. So Joseph swore to him. Then Israel bowed in thanks at the head 
of his bed. So what Jacob did well here in reminding his family that this was not their home. He wanted to be buried in Canaan because he believed God's promises. And he wanted to remind his family to believe in God's promise. Egypt was a temporary dwelling place for them, but he knew that God was preparing a place for his family where they were meant to be. And as a pastor, I I, I love reminding myself and reminding you that this is not our home, right? We are wanderers. We are strangers in this weary land. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, where it talks about all these people that we've been studying who had so much faith. It says they all died in faith, not having received the the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Isn't that awesome? We need to be reminded Just like Jacob wanted to remind his family, don't settle for this place. This is not home. This is not home. Like, we we need to keep that in our minds at all times. We have a problem if this world feels like home as believers. And I'm not talking about you just feel like you don't fit in. There's plenty of people without a relationship with Jesus that feel like they don't fit in. But why does it not feel like home? Eugene does not feel like home to me. Now, many of you would say, well, that's because you grew up in Oklahoma. Okay. But then, does Oklahoma feel like home? And the answer is no, it doesn't. Because it shouldn't. The closer that I've grown to Christ in my life, the more alien I feel in this world. And it's not just because my politics don't fit in. It's not just because my morals are different than the world. It's not just because, yeah, I would like some more wide open space than, than... the city life sometimes, but it's because I want to be with Jesus, right? He's my pearl. He's my treasure that's hidden. He's, I, I am his bride, and I want to be with him. And if it was any other way, then wouldn't it be like Hebrews was just saying, if, I, if that's not what I wanted, if that's not where my home was, where my heart was, would God not be ashamed to be called my God? I believe he would. Wouldn't you be ashamed to be called the husband or wife of someone that doesn't want to be with you? If your spouse was like, I want to sleep with other people and live in different locations, that, you'd be ashamed. That would be so embarrassing. Like, we have to stop to consider, like, would God be ashamed? Is he ashamed when we go somewhere and people find out that we call ourselves a Christian? Is he embarrassed that we're identifying ourselves with him? I hope not. And we have to ask ourselves, if, if this world does feel like home, what does that communicate? I know a lot of people who call themselves Christians who desire a better city or state or country, but I'm not so sure whether some of them desire the heavenly one. Sometimes I think they just desire a, a conservative one 
or a capitalist country, or a well-policed country. And it's not that, that, that I'm against those things, but can I remind you, there is a better one, a heavenly one, and that is your true home. That's where you have to keep your eyes on. People say home is where the heart is. Well, I'm telling you, your heart better not be in Eugene, or Oregon, or the United States of America. We're fans of Matt Carney. We've been to several of his concerts, but if he truly left his heart in Oregon, then I feel bad for him. Some of you are like, we have no idea what that is. But if you go to Oregon sporting events, the University of Oregon sporting events, it's the song they always play. <clears throat> and I know that for some of you, the things that I'm saying right now might feel convicting. They might feel like a challenge. And that's okay if it, if it needs to be. But for most of us, and I hope what it can be for you is what it is for me, it's actually comforting. Because I've lived, like we said, I've visited, what, 20 different countries? I've lived in three countries, four states, and 14 different houses and apartments, but I have never been home. I've never been home. One day I will. I hope you're going to be there too. But we're going to continue on in chapter 48. Starting in verses 1 through 6. Sometime after this, Joseph was told, your father is weaker. So he set out with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. He said to me, I will make you fruitful and numerous. I will make many nations come from you. And I will give this land as a permanent possession to your future descendants. Your two sons born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are now mine. Ephraim and Manasseh belong to me, just as Reuben and Simeon do. Children born to you after them will be yours and will be recorded under the names of their brothers with regard to their inheritance. So what Jacob is saying here is that Manasseh and Ephraim are actually displacing Reuben and Simeon. These boys would not be considered Joseph's sons in terms of the birthright. They would be considered Jacob's sons. And 1 Chronicles 5, 1 and 2 give us a little more insight. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. So he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the leader, that's Christ, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. All right, so... We know, as it's saying here, Judah would become the most important tribe and the one through which the line of Christ would come. But the tribe of Joseph, split as Manasseh and Ephraim, would have the birthright and become very numerous and powerful in the family as well. So verse 7, When I was returning from Padan, to my sorrow Rachel died along the way, some distance from Ephrath in the land of Canaan. I buried her there along the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they are my sons. God has given me here. So Israel said, bring them to me and I will bless them. Now his eyesight was poor because of old age. He could hardly see. Joseph brought 
them to him, and he kissed and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, but now God has even let me see your offspring. Then Joseph took them from his father's knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Then Joseph took them both with his right hand, Ephraim, toward Israel's left, and with his left hand, Manasseh, toward Israel's right, and brought them to Israel. But Israel stretched out his right hand and put it on the head of Ephraim, the younger, and crossing his hands, he put his left on Manasseh's head, although Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, may he bless these boys, and may they be called by my name in the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow to be numerous within the land. So Jacob gets up, he sets up to bless them, and Joseph makes sure everything's in the right place. Everybody's in the right place. He's like, okay, Manasseh, you come over here. Uh, all right, you go to grandpa's right side. You're the older one. And Ephraim, you come over here. You could, you're on grandpa's left side. And you're the younger. Okay. All right, dad, we're all set. Older on your right, younger on your left. And Jacob's like, all right. And starts to bless them backwards, the opposite of what Joseph was expecting. And, and when Joseph saw that his father had placed his right hand on Ephraim's head, he thought it was a mistake and took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's. Joseph said to his father, not that way, my father. This one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son. I know. He too will become a tribe and he too will be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his offspring will become a populous nation. So he blessed them that day, putting Ephraim before Manasseh, when he said, The nation Israel will invoke blessings by you, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Israel said to Joseph, Look, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you back to the land of your fathers. Over and above what I am giving your brothers, I am giving you the one mountain slope that I took from the Amorites with my sword and bow. So Joseph, when he saw what was happening, he's like, whoa, dad, no, 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 you messed up. And I pictured Jacob saying like, come on, Joseph. Like, do you, do you remember any of our family stories? Like Cain's offering was rejected. Abel's was accepted. Adam's younger son, Seth, was the one who became the chosen line. Isaac was chosen over Ishmael. Me over your uncle Esau, right? Uh, heck, Joseph, you were over your brothers. And I just said that your sons are going to displace Reuben and Simeon. Do you see a theme here, son? So Jacob proceeds and blesses Ephraim as the oldest. And we're given no information about how Jacob knew that this was the right thing to do. But we do have Hebrews 11.21, which says, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So this teaches us that it was in faith. Right? Jacob wasn't being guided by a desire to buck tradition. He wasn't just having a little fun as an old man and shaking things up. In some way, God had revealed to him, this is what God wanted, and he proceeded in faith. Victor Hamilton said, Jacob may have been losing his sight, but he wasn't losing his insight. And here's the thing about God's grace. It's wild. And I say that in the way that it's not tame, 
Right? It doesn't fit modern sensitivities and human expectation. All throughout Scripture, we see God's grace being distributed in unexpected ways to unassuming people. It doesn't follow traditions. You can't predict it. It's a wild stallion that runs where it pleases. And that is a really good thing because what it means is God's grace cannot be bought and it cannot be controlled. And God, in his wisdom and his love, he gives us the blessings that we need even if not always the ones that we want or desire. That we want or expect. But he does give us what we need. Marcus Dodds, uh, he was a Victorian era principal of New College Edinburgh, commented about this. And that'll explain why there's some of the old English in this. He said again and again, for years together, we put forward some cherished desire to God's right hand and are displeased, like Joseph, that still the hand of greater blessing should pass to some other thing. Does God not know what is oldest with us, what has been longest at our hearts and is dearest to us? Certainly he does. I know it, my son, I know. He answers to all our expostulations. It's not because he does not understand or regard your predilections, your natural and excusable preferences that he sometimes refuses to gratify your whole desire and pours upon you blessings of a kind somewhat different from those you most earnestly covet. He will give you the whole that Christ hath merited, but for the application and distribution of that grace and blessing, you must be content to trust him. You see, Joseph as he had learned in so many scenarios in his life to trust God, now had to trust God with his sons. And we will likely find ourselves in similar situations throughout our lives. You're you're never going to discover a situation or even a moment in time when God does not have your best interest in mind. But sometimes his best interests just don't always fit into our box. And, and, and we can be like, God, you know how long I've wanted this. I've been praying for it for so long. You know that my heart is in the right place. And God can be like, ah, you're absolutely right. You want it. You've been praying for it. It's a good thing that you're asking for. It's not your heart that's the problem. I just know that you need something different. I have a, a different blessing for you. And will you trust me? And sometimes we put something at God's right hand and then he crosses his arms. And we say, no, 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 God, you did that wrong. And he's like, no, no, my hand is in exactly the right place. You just put the wrong thing there. As for Joseph, he did trust God. Kent Hughes pointed out that Joseph lived out his career in Egypt, but we have no record of any of his children having any kind of power in Egypt over that, the next 400 years And so he compares him to Moses, which Hebrews 11 says about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. He had his mind set on a better country. 
Like Moses, as Jacob's faith had encouraged, Joseph, Joseph also did not cling to Egypt. And these men are an amazing example. And, and this brings up a tough evaluation that we can do with ourselves, right? Would we rather be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin? Or how about this? Would we rather be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the so-called peace that comes with being one of those secret, hidden kind of... Uh, what silent Christians, the kind that hide under a basket, like Matthew 5 talks about, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, it's, this is not our home. We, we need to keep that in our minds, but it is our mission field, right? We can't forget that. So we don't want to become so focused on daydreaming about our true home that we forget to stop looking at this world where people need us. People need you to take the gospel. Satan roams around this planet seeking to destroy, but we roam around bringing good news of great joy. Yes, we are wanderers, but we're not wandering aimlessly. Yes, we are strangers in this land, but we are, not, but we are strangers with the best news ever. And so I'm going to ask you this morning, is Christ where your joy is? Is he your hidden treasure? Is he that pearl of great price? Do you yearn for a heavenly city, for a better country, because he is there? Do you like him or do you love him? And here's a test that you can look at your life. Do you joyfully submit yourself to him? Just as the people did to Pharaoh and to Joseph, because they were grateful that there was a way to be saved and they were grateful to the one who orchestrated it. Do you joyfully submit to Jesus? Do you go before him and you say, here, all I have to offer is me. And I give myself to you wholly, completely, gladly. Thank you. I'm going to tell you something that Jesus said. You've heard it before. And if you don't like it, don't kill the messenger. I'm just telling you what he said. He said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. That's what he said. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. And I'm telling you that heaven is not going to be filled with people who like Jesus. Only with those who love him. Now, are we making that into a workspace salvation? Absolutely not. But being shackled to Christ is no burden. It is joy and freedom. Do you believe that? I do believe it. And that's why like, I can hang my hat anywhere in this world but my heart is with him. Three countries, four states, 14 dwellings. I've never been home. One day I'm going to be home. I'm going to be in that better country, in that city. And I hope that you'll be there with me my father's house has many rooms. There's plenty. One of them is reserved for me. 
If you don't have yours reserved, then I don't know what you're waiting for. But I'm looking forward to being home.